You're listening to Medicine for the Resistance. Yeah, so I just finished reading The Disordered Cosmos by Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. You know, so then when I came across Hilding, we came across Hilding a few weeks ago about indigenous stargazing, Um, Mi'kmaq astronomer and... Tell us about yourself and about the um, about indigenous stargazing. Yeah, so I said I'm holding. Uh, I'm Mi'kmaq uh, and settler from. I grew up in Newfoundland or Dunmo Group. Uh, that's where my family's from the west coast of the island. Um, got my PhD at the University of Toronto in astrophysics. Did some research uh, back as a as a contract faculty at the University of Toronto, working in the Department of Astronomy. Just uh, just next door to AWP, and I've been really interested in trying to bridge a lot of uh, initiative in astronomy that we don't really talk about much, which is indigenous knowledge. If I were to show you a textbook, you know, like a 500-page tome of astronomy knowledge from cosmology to exoplanets, there'd be two pages on indigenous knowledge, mm. and we'd be sharing those two pages with Stonehenge and Newgrange in Ireland, and they'll be talking about perhaps the uh, Mayan astronomy or maybe Hawaiian navigators. And it would be spoken about as if it were past tense, as if indigenous people don't exist. And then it will be like, now onto the real science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and a few years ago, I got to attend a national meeting of uh, Canadian astronomers and uh, Cree astronomer, educator, Wilfred Buck was presenting and he gave a talk to the audience discussing all these Cree stories, beautiful Cree stories, uh, the, bear, the bear constellation, the three dog constellation. And I was seeing all this knowledge that we don't talk about in academic spaces. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting there wondering like, uh, WTF is our knowledge. Where's indigenous knowledge? Where's Mi'kmaq knowledge? Where are the constellations? Why don't we talk about them? And so this sort of uh, became this giant rabbit hole that I've been going through trying to find different knowledges and indigenous methodologies and <clears throat> try to create a new space in academic astronomy for more indigenous knowledge. So I, granted that mostly focused on the North American uh, Turtle Island people. Uh, just, there's just too much out there to uh, try to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully now in the fall, we'll be launching our, a new course on indigenous astronomies that will be a senior level course to talk about issues around colonization and astronomy, whether that's dealing with telescopes on earth or going out to Mars, um, talking about knowledges and then indigenous methodologies. You know, how would an indigenous, how would indigenous people think about the concepts like the Drake equation? Like we asked the question, how many advanced civilizations are there? And noting that advanced civilization has its own problems with terminology. Are there in our galaxy? And you know, some dude named Frank Drake in the 1960s came up with this whole way of kind of thinking about this through an equation. And every, all these assumptions equations like require things like what's intelligent life? How does life form? What is a civilization? And if we just step back and think back to, you know, how in different indigenous communities would think about these things. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And you, there are ways of going through these kind of thought processes just a simple, one of the simple aspects of the Drake equation is, you know, how long civilizations sort of last that can communicate. 
And Frank Drake, you know, was doing this in the uh, in, during the Cold War. So, you know, the biggest fear was nuclear bombs. Uh, so he was suggesting maybe a century to a thousand years that civilizations might exist. Now that we're in the era of climate change, probably the same numbers apply. But, you know, I remember when seeing this meme a few years ago, Canada 150, McMoggy 13,000. Right. So, you know, if Western civilizations got about a century, perhaps indigenous civilizations tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's tens of thousands of years longer to exist. It means many more indigenous type or indigenous-like possibilities of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy. So just thinking from an indigenous perspective, using, and I try not to use really be pan-indigenous, but, you know, common methodologies, that you can have so many more civilizations in our, in our galaxy, if you think about it through those lenses of ind- different indigenous nations relative to traditional Western science. And we could probably play the, do this exercise throughout different elements of astronomy and physics. And I think sort of help create this critical lens again uh, around how we talk about astronomy and astrophysics. Because it's become so Eurocentric, so Westernized, so much in this narrative of space cowboys colonizing Mars, planting flags, sending messages out to other worlds. that were really embodied within the same colonial narrative from the last four or five centuries that I think we're due now to actually start thinking about it from a a broader context. Mm -hmm. There were two things that Chanda talked about and I kind of tweeted about it because one of the things that she mentions is Euclidean, she's talking about Euclidean geometry, just, you know, you know, to bring it way down to super simple stuff for, for all the non-physicists in the room. Um, well, what she's talking about is that we're thinking in terms, uh, you know, Euclidean geometry is, you know, squares have a certain number of angles inside them and triangles always add up to 180. But then when we map that onto a curved space, that doesn't work. It does, the, the triangle no longer adds up to 180, and yet we live on a curved planet underneath a curved sky. And we think in terms of, of these, you, you know, of these flat, you know, these, these flat geometries, which got me thinking of, you know, which got me thinking about the way colonization worked, carving up the countries into these little squares to give away chunks of land. And they're carving up spaces that are curved. You know, they're carving rivers in half and hills in half. And, you know, just because the lines match up and they're mapping this grid and starting this this disconnection. And we do that to the sky. We kind of chart it off in ways that aren't super helpful. I mean, they're helpful if you want to lay claim to it. If you want to, like you say, plant your flag in it, then it's very helpful to map it out that way. But in terms of relationship, in terms of understanding how things connect together is not super helpful. So how does, I guess, how does the night sky change when we look at it through indigenous eyes? So I think if we look at the night sky and start with the traditional Greco-Roman, we have all these constellations defined by this International Astronomical Union. So 88 constellations. And this was done in, I don't know, around the beginning of the 1900s by a British guy, a German guy, and a French guy. So it's a bad joke already. And when this happened, they kind of, like I said, they carved it up. They used Greek stories. 
They made up, they borrowed some constellations or from parts, particularly for the Southern Hemisphere, where they completely imported their own belief system into those constellations. But in doing so, they also sanitized a lot of the Greek and Roman stories. You know, there are Greek and Roman stories for Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, and Cepheus, and all these different constellations. But when we did this mapping, which was solely for convenience for people with telescopes who wanted to observing and had to know where to look, it became turned into nothing. You know, it took all the it took our connections away from it, from a in the European sense. And when that became transplanted over here, you know, the Mi'kmaq, where there's Ursa Major, the Mi'kmaq also have a bear constellation. The Cree have a bear constellation. Lots of cultures in the world have bear constellations around the, what we would call the Big Dipper today. Really? We all looked at that and saw a bear. Many, yeah, many it's a bear and hunters. Uh, That's neat. bear and a tail, some is bear and cubs. Uh, there's a lot of commonalities like that. And, but the problem is, is that this was designed solely to erase indigenous cultures and indigenous knowledges. And for, you know, like the Mi'kmaq and for many indigenous peoples in what's the Canada, you know, what is in the sky is kind of, is a reflection of the land below, you know, knowledge is localized. Mm -hmm. And so if we basically say that constellation is Bristol major and your knowledge doesn't count, that's all about removing us, removing us from the land. Just as much as, uh, maybe not as much as actually literally removing us from the land, but it's, it's part of that disconnection. Mm -hmm. And, and so that erasure is a part of the problem. And I think that, you know, for my own self, like I didn't get to grow up within a community, you know, uh, most people, most Mi'kmaq in Newfoundland, you know, we were kind of away from most of the communities, just where Newfoundland was. And in that respect, you know, how do we kind of understand those constellations? You know, I only know one or two Mi'kmaq constellations. I don't think I can name all 88 European constellations, but I can name a lot of them. I could probably name a few of the Cree constellations thanks to, you know, listening to Wilfred Buck and reading his stories. And so trying to reclaim that knowledge is also kind of important because that's part of our connection to the land. You know, what I, the, the constellations I see here where I'm sitting in Toronto or to Toronto are different than if I go to the far north or if I go to the southern hemisphere. You know, mm -hmm. if I go to Australia, the moon looks completely different. You know, for someone coming from Australia to here, the moon looks like it's upside down and vice versa. And so the stories change and our connections and our relations to these to these celestial objects change. And that's that is the one of the unfortunate repercussions of uh, the, the legacy colonization with respect to the night sky. And then another thing that I think relates to that, not just the constellations, but it's the light pollution. Oh, yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to joke, you know, I live in Toronto. If I step out on my balcony, I might see five stars in the night. One of them might be on CBC TV. You know, they, they're just so few you can see. So you just lose that connection in this void of orange dull light. Yes. And yeah. how do we, you know, so I can't see the Milky Way or what in Mi'kmaq would be a spirit road, which is also a spirit path for many other cultures. You know, so how do I connect to the ancestors in that respect? That's so all these things. Really, that's actually a really interesting point. Um, and eventually I'll let Carrie get a word in edgewise. She's just here smiling and nodding and <laughs> I'm taking it all in the way she does. Um, 
because that's something like when I think about language, right? That's something residential schools took from us. And then if, you know, so if in your cosmology, you believe that you need to speak the language or the spirits won't understand what you're saying, how do you show gratitude? They can't hear you. And then if you die and you don't speak the language, then the spirits won't recognize you. And so removing language in that way, you know, kind of cuts us off. And then as you were talking about not being able to see the night sky, the, you know, it, the stars are our ancestors. And after reading Chanda's book, they are in a very real sense, you know, that's, you know, they really, you know, they, they really are our ancestors. They really are our relatives, um, you know, in a very literal kind of way, uh, you know, very material kind of way. But that light pollution that also cuts us off from them, cuts us off from being able to see them in the way that our, you know, our, our ancestors walking this earth saw and understood themselves to exist, you know, kind of beneath the sky in relation in, in, in relationship to the sky. So that's, yeah, she asks that what in her book, like, what would it take for our communities to see, to see the stars? What would it take? Reflecting on her own, having to be driven outside of LA for a, you know, two, three hour drive to be able to see what would it take for our children, you know, for our communities, what changes do we need to make for them to be able to see the night sky? We're going to um, uh, the National Park in Nova Scotia this summer, and I found out that it's a dark sky preserve. So I had to mm. rearrange our travel plans so that we will be there during the new moon. So there's no moon and the, there'll be no moon in the sky. Um, I've never seen the stars like that. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm 55. And I've and there and there will be a whole night sky that I've never experienced that my father had. My father did from growing up in northern Ontario. Mm -hmm. Like it's that it's that tangible, it's that recent for a lot of us. Not for all of us, but for a lot of us. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I I, I haven't been home to visit my family since before the uh uh, these end times COVID and you know when going home and seeing the night sky and seeing what is essentially billions of lights over your head it, it's completely transforming and different and far more reassuring in my mind it's like it feels more like a blanket and you know there's a greater universe there's relations you know Western science did get it right when Carl Sagan said we are made of, we are made of star stuff, just like pre people we are star you know star people, it, you know it's all true, and we have that connection. And you know sitting in Toronto and just basking in that eerie orange glow, you know you, we I think we miss out on so much, and and I think it also negatively impacts how we how we understand things like astronomy and physics. Um, you know, even from a Western sense, the great the, so, the great astronomers in Europe or even in you know China and India and you know if you don't even think about it from true purely indigenous North American sense, you know everyone had that kind of perspective of the night sky. They could observe it they could, if they had the telescopes or lenses or instruments, they could see these things and learn to connect and figure out how they want to connect with it. Whereas today. Sing at Toronto. There's no way to connect to the night sky unless I want to use a computer and then log on to a planetarium software. Mm. That's sort of what I think that's sort of what our, our children have to deal with today is 
it's easier to see the constellations through a computer software than it is to go outside. Well, and even what they see is filtered, right? Like I've got that stargaze, mm -hmm. that star yeah. map app on my phone. So because I, I don't, I can recognize the Big Dipper on a good night. I, that's I'm really not very good at it. But, you know, I hold up my phone Honestly, and, not much and I better. can find it. I can find it that way. And I kind of map out, oh, that's where this is. And that's where that is. But they're all, they're not the Cree constellations. You know, they're not, they're, they're not they're the not. Igbo or, or Yoruba constellations. They're not the Anishinaabe constellations. They're not the way I, our ancestors would have seen the night sky. They're organized and collated in a way, you, you know, in, in, in a European way. And all those disconnected stories. And I, our I, constellations aren't static either. I mean, sometimes, you know, in Mi'kmaq we have the story of the bear and the bear changes through the year. You know, in the winter, the bear is on his back as a spirit. In the summer, it's running across the land. Some con the constellations have different meanings at different times of the year, whereas the European constellations are static, kind of locked in forever, or as forever as, as they want it to be. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we kind of miss out on, on a lot of the dynamic aspects of, of these constellations that come from the motions of the Earth around the sun or the rotation of the Earth and the motions of the sky around us. And so, so there's a lot, I think a lot more depth in a lot many indigenous populations that we don't see relative to the European. I, um, this conversation is, I, I'm loving so many points. There's so many things that you guys have touched that I've kind of been like, yeah, right? Um, what comes to mind for me when I think about it is how, what you mentioned very early on, the idea of um, building of, of the erasure, you know, the way that when you, you were talking about that 500 page textbook that would just, you know, mention maybe two pages of the ancient ways or of indigenous cultures showing up in those books. And what I find fascinating about that is that we know that ancient cultures actually are um, actually really had mapping and stargazing down to a science, down to a detailed, finite way that they were building um, architecture and buildings to map and, and offer that space up. And so it's kind of like a little tiny bit of a pet project that I, I really enjoy um, talking about this from an ancient space. And what comes to mind for me is even these knowledges that weren't um, or Europeans have suppressed or have not allowed, or colonization has suppressed and not allowed us to expand into. Take, for example, the Dogan tribe, which is an African tribe um, that existed and was kind was very much removed from, um, you know, civilization or from colonialism until the early two, 1900s. And I'm sure you can explain a lot more about this, but they knew about the constellation or the, the star system Sirius, sorry, they knew about Sirius B, was it? Or was it that mm -hmm. they found and could map Sirius B before Europeans even knew it existed? And they speak about it from their own ancient traditions. You know, it goes into a whole other realm, which I'm really into, but the, the idea that they were given the gifts from their, you know, um, from their gods that came down and told them how to map these star systems. And they had no um, modern day 
under um, interactions to be able to have known that it existed, except for from some sort of knowledge that must have been ancient to them. And I, I think about when we talk about this, this idea of the erasure, how much of the truth of how the history of our planet, the history of um, our species, understanding the relationships that exist between us, the stars, space, and the universe are being affected because we have been narrowed down and watched down into what I love, Patty, when you were talking about the idea of a two-dimensional space instead of knowing the curvature of our lands and knowing the curvature of the skies. How much of us is not being met or the truth of us is being so lost in those spaces. That's definitely true. And I, I've heard the story of uh, the Dogon and to put it in context, so Sirius A is one of the brightest stars in the night sky. The Sirius B is what's called a white dwarf star, which is really small, compact, and is essentially the dead remainder of a, of, of a star that has lost most of its uh, material. And so today you can only really see Sirius B with the telescope. Uh, now, I don't really know much about the, the Dogon story because uh, as I understand it came from, through from French anthropologists and as soon as I hear the word anthropologist, I tend to tune out. Um, but yeah, the, it's very possible and very likely they did know about it because it might've been a star bright enough to see with the human eye 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago or even 100,000 years ago. And there are stories like that that come up all the time. Um, you know, there are stories of uh, a Paiute story from on the West Coast about the North, how the North Star came to be. And in it, this, it is a uh, son of the chief who's climbing a mountain, lives climbing a mountain. And he finds this really hard piece to climb and he keeps going around in circles, circles and circles, trying to find a way up the mountain, but so hard. So eventually he finds an opening and goes through the cave and climbs the way to the top. But unfortunately, when he gets to the top, there was, a, there was an outline from the cave closed and he's trapped on the mountain. And that story can literally be interpreted as precession of the star because what we call the North Star today wasn't always the North Star. It had to go around and around and around. And so we see these long time domains and that's one of the things that's very valuable in astronomy. Uh, there are stories in Anoshinabe about heartberry stars, which are red supergiants that change brightness. And the same, very similar stories are seen in different indigenous Australian uh, nations about these things. And the time to, indigenous knowledge carries so much time to me that, you know, if I think, you know, if Western astronomers just sat down and listened, we would learn a lot. If, about, about these knowledge and about the history of the universe. Because it was only a couple centuries ago where we were, where the, the popular dogma was that the astronomy was, or space was static, that it was unchanging. But yeah, that wasn't part of, I think, indigenous way. Hmm. Um, What's possible just to come back, you know, to what you had said about, you know, when you hear anthropologists, you kind of, because yeah, I mean, they just, they get so much wrong because they've got this particular lens that they're trying to jam the story into. So, because then like the Anishinaabe word for home, for North actually means um, goes home and it carries the, and it contains, according to elders, it contains the idea of the glaciers going home, which meant we knew that they weren't always, you know, so during the last mm -hmm. ice age, we knew that they had come from the North and gone back, which suggests 
knowledge of well over, you know, you know, 10, 15,000 years. Cause we didn't just know they were there. We knew where they had come from. You know, we knew that they went back. So it's the same, you know, with the star, maybe they knew it 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 years ago. Their language contained the story of this star that is no longer visible, but it was back then. And so when the French anthropologists heard it, they're like, oh, the stars have always looked like this. Therefore, these people couldn't have figured it out on their own. It must have been aliens telling them about it. You know, it must have been, yeah. they couldn't have known it themselves. And yet, and I've had the joy of hearing they the aliens. Themselves. So yeah. that's real. That's, I hadn't put those things together. That's really neat. So yeah. And, um, yeah, so we had a question in the chat. So if you could I don't even know what it means, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let you answer that. <laughs> so if we look at the Western constellation Orion, on one of the shoulders is this very red star called Betelgeuse. And this is a famous red supergiant that is near the end of its life. And when it finally dies, it's going to explode as a supernova and it's gonna be so bright we'll probably see it during the day. Like it'll be it could be about as bright as Venus. And so this is not the first star that has ever done this, blown up like that. And, that, and, that was, and the explosion being bright enough and close enough that we could see it. There have been other instances uh, around the year 1000. There was a star in what was called the Crab Nebula. Uh, in terms of indigenous stories, I can, I've only heard of one and I can't confirm it because the times that I was giving them the story don't line up with the astronomical knowledge, but it's possible. So. Uh, I was contacted by someone in Mimagi telling me about the Mi'kmaq flag. And the Mi'kmaq flag is a white flag with a cross and a star and a moon. And that person was telling me that the star and the moon reflect a catastrophic, catastrophic event or time frame where people were struggling and there was starvation. But it was because there was a bright star in the sky that didn't belong there in a constellation in Europe called Cygnus. And he said this was about 2000 years ago. Uh, I, so I was very curious because the fact that he took the person told me the constellation, I'm like, I had to look this up. And there is a remnant of the star that was there from the, but it, best, our best estimates that exploded around 20,000 years ago. Now, I don't, you know, everybody tells time different stories change. So maybe it's related. We know from, uh, but more recently, there was a very popular one called the Crab Nebula, which is the explosion about a thousand years ago that appears in historical records from around the world. Uh, it's been linked to the city Cahokia in what is today Mississippi, I believe, which was a large indigenous city there. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but people have tried to link the two, the two, the two events, timescales, but it's seen, seen in a lot of Korean and Chinese texts where they note that there's a new star on the sky. And so, but funnily enough, it never appeared in European texts that I'm aware of. Hmm. So it has happened. And I think we see these, these, these uh, stories do occur. I'm just not really familiar with too many of them. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any, I can't think of any others off the top of my head, but you know, even just a few years ago, uh, or actually just a few hundred years ago, uh, you know, in the heyday of Isaac Newton, and then, you know, that was a big deal for a lot of astronomers was to find these new stars. Uh, supernovae and so like Johannes Kepler and Tycho Brahe and these famous white scientists in Europe spent time and found a few I'm not aware of any stories indigenous stories of being linked to these uh, events I'm sure they're there yeah uh, 
you know, we just need to listen to the stories. And sometimes it's, it's the way we hear them, right? Like it, it's understanding, like remember um, we talked with Del Lesson uh, some time ago about um, they're uh, basically rebuilding the Catawba language. And there's a, there, there was a story about, um, oh, I think it was a rabbit and it caught, you know, things caught on fire and, and it, you, you know, and it sounded like just kind of this funny story about this rabbit dragging fire through a field. But what it actually contained was agricultural knowledge about agricultural burning. And because there was a plant, uh, a sunflower type plant that has an edible tuber and it required, but it contains, so the story contains all of this knowledge that they didn't initially recognize because of language loss, because of culture loss. It just seemed like an interesting story. Um, and so, you know, that now they understand is actually something that contains agriculture, you know, important agricultural knowledge, which then makes you go back and look at the other stories. <laughs> you know, what knowledge is in there that we're not getting because we've lost so much contact context. And like you had said about the Greek stories and stuff that are put up into the constellation, even those are stripped. You know, even, even in the process of colonizing the sky, they still strip meaning from it. We don't even get good stories. We just get kind of these stripped down, sanitized picture books, but the real story is there. Like it's there in, in our stories, in our cosmologies. We just need to, we just need to listen differently and look at and and look at them differently. And some of that is how how did you start shifting your lens? Because you talked about not not growing up surrounded, you know, by a Mi'kmaq community. How did you start shifting your lens? It really wasn't that long ago. Um, you know, I'm fully trained in the Western system of astronomy, uh, and I think it was really hit off when I had that interaction with Wilford Buck and not seeing any indigenous knowledges and then just diving in through some of the great works you know the works of uh, Marie Batista, uh, Gregory Cajete, all these great indigenous science experts talking about all these different ideas and ways of thinking and, and perspectives and and I, I, you know, I always have to step back and be like whoa what am I what am I doing you know why am I thinking about this question this way why am I thinking about stellar physics this way or quantum mechanics that way. Even, you know, all these things are just coming together and you kind of have to question them. And it's really only been like the last four or five years where I've really been trying to relearn everything. And for the most part, I feel like I've done a whole other PhD. Um, okay, so let's know. talk about quantum mechanics for a minute because that's, or, or maybe longer because it'll take a minute just to explain what that is. Because I was reading Lawrence Gross, um, and he has this book called Anishinaabe Ways of Knowing and Being. And I have to get it out again. Um, it's actually behind me on my bookshelf. Because there's a chapter in there where he talks about how Anishinaabe worldview and way of thinking, um, and the Mi'kmaq and the Anishinaabe are cousins. Um, you know, we migrated east and I guess made relatives and came back. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we're, we're cousins, but um, he says that our worldview is much closer to kind of a quantum mechanic way of understanding things. Um, and I've read his chapter. I've read Chanda. It's still just outside my grasp. <laughs> 
Quantum yeah. physicists are really, really smart. <laughs> we have two people in the chat are like, woo, love quantum mechanics. Right? <laughs> so yeah, do it. Uh, this is, yeah, so quantum mechanics is one of those things I'm always afraid of talking about because I don't understand quantum mechanics either. Um, I, I suspect most people in physics and astronomy don't actually understand quantum mechanics. We just do the math and hope for the best. AW says they are a quantum mechanic. <laughs> well, and that's interesting because I had just listened. I, I'm laughing about that because I had just listened to a talk with a physicist named Sean. What is Sean's last name? Um, Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll. Yes. And he was talking about that. And I thought it was fascinating that physicists are more concerned with the application, is that a better way of putting it, versus yeah. actually an overall grasp of what they're actu what actually it is. And that was like mind blowing to me to know that it's, we just assume, there's like this assumption that this works, but nobody's really looked at what makes it work, if that makes it, or we're looking at what makes it work, but not why it's there. Does that make sense? Sort mm -hmm. of, I think. I think it makes perfect sense. <laughs> I think I think we do focus a lot on the how it works as opposed to why it's doing it, what it's doing. And I think from uh, very much this astronomer's perspective, which is quantum mechanics is something you try to you do your best to approximate and not actually work with. You just try to work around it. Is we think so much from this classical Euclidean sense and quantum mechanics is completely counterintuitive to that. Whereas most indigenous knowledge that I come into grasp with, everything is very much about relatives, like how things relate between you and I, how, how I observe something, it's very different how you observe something and both truths can be true. Whereas in the West, we think everything has to be an absolute truth, which defies quantum mechanics because quantum mechanics is a particle has some speed and some place, but you can't really tell which is which. And, and so in a lot of these respects, I feel like Indigenous knowledges have an easier time with quantum mechanics because I think indigenous knowledges are a little more relaxed about not knowing things. It's okay that there are mysteries. Whereas in the West, having a mystery is the worst thing possible. You know, it, it has to be explainable, has to be reducible. It has to be objective. And like I have trouble with quantum mechanics. With, you know, I, I listen to Sean Carroll fairly regularly. I, you know, I love his, his writing and the words. And he's talking about this many worlds theory where you get, where if you observe a quantum event, depending on how you observe it, the universe branches. And I'm like, are we literally increasing the number of universes to help us explain how we don't know something? And we kind of do that. We, when we don't understand something locally, we tend to make things bigger. We don't, under, we don't understand evolution. So we make evolutionary changes smaller over longer time, time periods. It works. We don't understand cosmology, make the universe older. Or if we don't understand why cosmology works so well, we just create a multiverse. You know, one of the explanations of how we're, we can live in a universe that seems to work is that there's lots of universes. And there's just so many of these things like, that I think, you know, my understanding of these people is we live in a universe that works where things are just perfect for us to exist because we exist. It has to be that way. That's how we're related. That's how our relation with the universe. Whereas if you're in the West, you have the axiom that the universe doesn't care about us, that we, you know, the fact that we exist should just be a fluke. So the fact that we live in a universe that's just right 
can't doesn't make sense. It, it, and I have colleagues who get really stressed out by this question. And given and given to the point they try to pull out the hair, which given that no one's had a haircut in a long time might be useful. But you know, they just struggle with this and they don't like it. So sometimes they come up with the multiverse theory where we have where we're one universe in a bubble of others. And there are other reasons I expect a multiverse. Uh, AWP is much more of an expert on that than I am, for instance. I'd rather, and I'd rather defer to them. But so please let AW jump in. Um, <clears throat> but there's just so many of these things that I think indigenous knowledge is learned to accept because it's part of being in relation. And that relationality is what makes allows for these things to work. I think with quantum mechanics is a little more difficult because it's we also accept that there's a mystery, but there is fuzzy truth. You know, one there's multiple truths can can coexist at the same time. Whereas in the West, everything has to be objectively true. I, I do experiment, you do experiment, you should get the same answer. You know, and that objectivity doesn't quite work uh, otherwise. Oh, okay. But so that's sort of the best I can come up with. Uh, by kind of BSing a lot, um, <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, because I'm really speaking not in my best way. Right. I I love that you you know took the attempt, and I think you did beautifully with it. I appreciate you kind of tackling it because I think what I love about that is it, it's almost from this layman's space with a plus because you definitely know more than we do. Um, but what I I, I when I think about this and then we put it into the space of and our indigenous and you know my Afrocentric cultures, it does come from that acceptance that mystery is real. That and with that offers a simplicity to be in relation with all of those spaces. And what I mean by spaces is the universe, the stars, the earth how we stand on the earth, the relationship that we have with, you know, um, the animals on our planes, all of those things have an interconnective sense that is wrapped in the mystery. And so when we, like, I, I totally believe in scientific, scientific method. And I, 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 you know, I understand that being a space that we have as a, a template to work from, but I do sometimes think that that part of it, the idea of the acceptance that some of it is still to be revealed and being okay in that is um, lacking mm. in the way that we exist. And so what happens with that is, that is exactly that idea of disregarding, you know, or just pretending that that mystery isn't valuable. Mm -hmm. I had a, um, I, I remember when I was in uh, science in grade nine, um, our science teacher, because it was the only year that I had to take science, um, <laughs> we, we had a teacher who had, you, we were going over the criteria for life, and I think there's six, I don't remember what they are. Um, Anyway, so we had, we had, there were six criteria for life and, and he asks us, you know, you know, he's kind of running us through it. Do plants meet it? Does this person meet it? Does this, do rocks meet the criteria? And, you know, we kind of go through it and we're like, no, they don't. And he asks us again, are you sure? 
And we're like, oh, is this a trick question? <laughs> and, you know, and so we went through them again and we're like, nope, rocks are not alive. They don't meet the criteria. And he says, well, what if they just do this too slow and we can't measure it? What if they do this and, you know, we just don't have the capacity to see it? Like he wasn't trying to tell us that rocks were alive. He, he was trying to tell us that, you know, to keep those questions open, that what we, because he says science is one long chain of, we thought we knew that and we turned out to be wrong. So, so maybe our criteria is wrong and we always need to be open, you know, to thinking and questioning. And he's the only science teacher that I came across who was like that. Um, because I think, like you said, they have this idea that there's fixed knowledge. And I wonder, I, I, won, I wonder if some of that comes down to European thinkers emerging in a place where everybody had the same basic cosmology, right? Like the, all three Abrahamic religions existed in, you know, in Europe, the Jews and the Muslims were not treated very well, um, but they had the same fundamental cosmology, the same creation story, the same flood narrative. Um, whereas here, we're all bumping up against each other with our trading relationships and our treaties and stuff, and we don't have the same cosmologies. Um, you know, the Anishinaabeg and the Haudenosaunee lived, you know, very close to each other in lots of spaces, and we have some similarities, but some significant differences in terms of how we understand the world. And the Anishinaabeg and the Lakota are also kind of right up against each other, and we have significantly different cosmologies in terms of, like, there's a lot of similarities about how we see the world, but our cosmologies, like, our, our religions, you know, to use that word, are very different. And yet we learned to accept that that was not a big deal. And so I kind of wonder if some of that, because now I'm reading a pastor friend of mine um, has, has recommended this book, uh, shoot, what's it called? Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible and environmental ethics. And she's writing all about how the Bible is full of language about the world being alive, of trees, of the personhood of creation and a very indigenous, like what I would think of as a very Nishnabig way of thinking of the trees are people, the stars are people, the rivers are people, that this stuff is woven through. Because she, she says, when, when we talk about it, like it's metaphor, we're not like, you know, the trees clap with joy, then we're not saying that the trees have hands, but we're saying that they're expressing joy. That when the Hebrew people came back to the land, the land was happy that the land had the capacity to care. And that's been completely stripped. Like that's not present anywhere in any Christian theology that I have heard. <laughs> so that's been completely stripped from the text. And this is kind of my quest right now about how these things got stripped mm -hmm. because it got stripped from the way we understand the sky. So I don't even remember where I was going with that. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just I loving it though. They had created this kind of monolithic belief system that didn't yeah. allow for that kind of relationality. Whereas here on Turtle Island or whatever we want to call it, we were constantly bumping up against other ways of thinking about things and had, we're just okay with it. Like that's just, the Lakota are weird, but that's who they are. <laughs> right? and, and it's okay to be like that. 
you know, that sense of acceptance, (laughs) right? It's that sense of being in acceptance for all of it that I think is is what you're bringing front and center. And uh, just even taking in what you're saying there, Patty, I think it's quite brilliant, really interesting um, book. That's got to go down in the check of that one. interested in that um yeah me too that sounds very right very, <laughs> that's, very that's, cool. that's very interesting um however what what also comes to me when i think about that is this sense that we have here that with that stripping it was uh, it was what afforded this whole system the colonial space that we exist in to be even created and this disconnection that we are experiencing with the earth and the land. I, I just, my, my breath was just really heavy um, earlier today because I was reading an article, I think it was in USA Today, and they were talking about, they wanna move from saying climate change into using the terminology climate emergency because of the carbon that's in the earth, um, in the atmosphere, we're moving in major, major ways that is getting um, scary. They know that the Antarctic, um, the sheets, the ice sheets in the Antarctic are going to hit um, sea, the sea very mm-hmm. soon. And, and it's just a really scary dynamic. And personally, I have family, you know, um, in St. Vincent right now, where there is a, the volcano is going off and I'm getting live, you know, real live, um, you know, just uh, talking to my people's real live experience of what that kind of space is. And so when I think about how we have existed and disconnected the answers for me are coming from when we are doing and having conversations like this, of course, but really deep diving into this exploration of how we relate. How do we come back? How do we figure out those pieces that have been taken out and put back in? So, you know, when I hear that you're doing this work, Hilding, that to me is like, it's invaluable. How do we create this space now? Yeah, this is very interesting. When without the discussion last few minutes, what popped in my mind is Mars. Hmm. So NASA just put this most recent mission on Mars called Perseverance. You know, a little toy car going around the surface of Mars. We're going to have the first helicopter launch on Mars. And you know, there are lots of robots on Mars, and maybe in twenty years there will be people. Hmm. And hopefully, those people will not be led by Elon Musk, but <laughs> You know, but it does raise a lot of questions in the meantime, which is how alive is Mars? We don't know of anything alive on Mars within our current definition. We're pretty sure nothing comes above the surface, but we haven't really explored the subsurface of Mars. There could be life, maybe probably single, single cell life, but life is there, probably there. And even if it isn't, what do we have rights to impact that? What, what are the rights of Mars? Mm. I mean, you know, there's a great comic uh, that's the earth in a hospital bed and, and the, another planet is a doctor saying, oops, you have humans. Do we really have a right to infect Mars with more humans? That- or do we have that same right to the moon? Mm. And how we do that? 
how do we talk about colon, you know, because we do, we literally talk about Mars as colonization. Yes. We have movies of Matt Damon on Mars and we spend billions of dollars rescuing, rescuing a dumb white dude. <laughs> you know, and fully, in full disclosure, I'm also a dumb white dude. <laughs> so, you know, how do we talk about Mars from an Anishinaabe perspective? What would an Anishinaabe, what would the Haudenosaunee, what would a Mi'kmaq, Inuit mission to Mars look like? How would we engage and interact with Mars? You know, do we, what gifts do you offer Mars if we visit? What did, where are we allowed to take away from Mars? And we really need to have that conversation because right now this, the conversation is basically a Western novel. You know, we, the words frontier gets used a lot mm-hmm. or colonize, you know, they've sort of avoided colonization for the word exploration, but it's pretty much a dog whistle when it's basically going to be Elon Musk or another rich dude sending people there to do space mining because you know capitalism and how we face these things i think very much comes in this play of environmental ethics uh as you mentioned how we relate how we want to be intentionally related with mars because i mean if humans if the human mission to mars is the same kind of history as on earth in the last century of climate change we're probably not going to leave it, do anything good on Mars. Mm-hmm. We're not going to leave but, it better than we found it. No, and I mean, there are people who talk about dropping asteroids on Mars with the sole purpose of heating it up, blowing it up, and creating an atmosphere oh, so that we can terraform it. I mean, that's sort of what people really dream about is terraforming Mars. And I think we can look around North America and various other parts of the world and see terraforming from, you know, when Europeans killed the bison and introduced wheat and cattle to the prairies or how we terraform North, you know, different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite work as well as when we look at how various indigenous communities sort of lived in concerts where, you know, Haudenosaunee and, and their, their farming practices, pastoral farming out east, you know, the way we treat hunts and all these things. And so we need to have a, we definitely need to have this space open for more indigenous, you know, whether it's indigenous from North America, Afro-Indigenous, Australian-Indigenous, Pacific, everywhere in this conversation. Uh, And to be honest, if I'm going to fly on a rocket from the Earth to the Mars, Earth to Mars over 200 days, the person I probably want to ask about is someone who can actually navigate the Pacific using nothing but their hands. Uh, as opposed to say NASA, who leaves Matt Damon on Mars. You know, <laughs> there's so much expertise in indigenous communities for doing these things that we don't even think about. At least in the Western, from NASA or the Canadian Space Agency, necessarily. And so we should be having this conversation, and we should be having that. We really need that space if this is where what we want to do. Mm-hmm. If not, if we not, we're basically going to leave space exploration and. Uh, going to the moon and basically plastering us with satellites to people like Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not obvious, I kind of really dislike that guy. <laughs> well, just like when we were talking, how did we guess? Hi, right? And you know, it's not just cluttered from light below. Thanks to Elon Musk, it's cluttered from it, it, it's now cluttered 
you, you know, from yeah. things he's putting up there, uh, you yeah. know, that's causing problems and he doesn't care because that's not, that's not his, that, that that's yeah. not the frame that he thinks within. If light pollution erases our stories, those satellites are rewriting them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And oh, what, why does he that. get to do that? Yeah. Love that. And I think that is so powerful. Like, I never, like, I've had these thoughts. So hearing you speak it and, and really, you know, bringing that into the light. Love that. I, I'm, I'm really relating. It resonates deeply because I agree with you. And for me, the other piece to that is this idea that we discard the earth. This idea that we have raped her. You know, yeah. she, the earth has been raped and pillaged very much like, guess what, you know, every colonial story that we know, and now we're about to just move on. And so it speaks to me about this push in the way that we are human and, and how we are showing up in our humanness. So I, and without the interjection, without, these, without that conversation being had, and I don't know if it's, is it happening on mass yet, but without those conversations, we are destined to repeat it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if Amazon, people, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, if these people are driving the conversation, you know, they're just the, they're just the mercantile colonials. There's no difference between Elon Musk and Shamalou de Champlain. You know, and the worst part about Samuel's plan is he had his life saved by indigenous people because he wintered over and they cured him of scurvy and he just thanked God as opposed to, you know, people. Yeah. Like, and this oh. is what we're facing again. <laughs> yeah, we're facing this again and it's, it's the same story just being retold in a whole new scale. And people are, conversations are starting to be had. Um, I think where their developments in terms of international law with things called Artemis Accords, which relate primarily to going to the moon and lunar exploration. But the biggest thing there is about preserving sites on the moon of, astro of astronomical significance or human significance. So, you know, wherever they, where they planted the flag on the moon, that might be a national park or a lunar national park. But that doesn't stop anybody from going up there and, you know, drawing a smiley face on the face of the moon. Well, in national parks, what what does that even mean? Sense, right? Because they 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 create this idea of wilderness and nature that takes people out of it, and it preserves it. Like mm -hmm. for what, you know? So oh, it's just why are we like this? Why are we like this? We have to think about what kinds of humans. I just wrote an essay. Um, for the for rampant magazine where we're like what kind of people do we want to be what kind of ancestors you know as you know thinking about you know thinking about the stars um you, you know looking up at the stars and knowing that those are our ancestors and knowing that we're gonna be ancestors we're gonna be star stuff uh, you, you know in, in so what kind of ancestors do we want to be to the worlds that come after us because we're, you know, worlds came before us, worlds will come after us. What kind of ancestors do we want to be? What do we want to leave? What kind of footsteps do we want to leave? And 
stories and possibilities and we got to think about that stuff as opposed to I don't know well they are they are thinking about that kind of stuff they're just not coming to the same conclusions that we would want them to how big how big is that like when we're talking about I'm, I'm really interested in those in the conversations how big is that movement is it is it growing like is there uh, an understanding that wait a minute we're creating the possibility of lunar parks on the moon like that that makes me I'm laughing but I'm horrified all in the same breath are are those conversations uh, coming up in real ways like in in wait a minute hello 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 type thoughts because we are, are hearing more about the explore explorations happening and and do we have somebody tempering it is that something i don't think we really have a very strong conversation around space ethics uh it's growing largely because that's the only direction it can possibly go you know it's harder to have fewer fewer than zero people talking about it so there's things that are starting to happen uh, slowly in the astronomy community, but it's very limited. Um, I think my colleagues really kind of learned something about this from Elon Musk. When he put up the satellites and it interfered with telescopes on Earth, you know, because when the satellites cross in front of the telescope, you just get all these streaks on your images. And, they, and there were people who freaked out. And it accused Elon Musk of colonization and not cons consulting in all this other language that we were ignoring from native Hawaiians talking about the 30 meter telescope on Mauna Kea. And this is a project in Hawaii to build a very big telescope on top of a mountain where, where many native Hawaiians said, um, no, we're good. And many of my colleagues returned kind of uh, we're very against the Hawaiian response using phrases like science versus religion, progress versus history. And then the, they use the same language as many of the indigenous peoples were using to talk about Elon Musk. And I'm not sure they, some of them I don't think quite got the hypocrisy, but I think a lot of people started to see that there has to be a greater discussion and voice because no matter, no matter what's happening, you know, at some point, your voice is not might not be the one that gets heard, and then you pay the price. And so, I think some of this is, is becoming more and more important. Um, you know, particularly as space becomes the uh, playground for the very, very ridiculously uber rich. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been super interesting. Super interested in you know get in getting more into kind of what quantum mechanics. Just because like what you had said about the re relationality of it, and how that you, you know and how that has implications for how we understand how we work within the world and how we relate to things. So I'm really interested in kind of going going in that direction. I don't know, man. I read this physics book and it was super interesting and nobody saw that coming. <laughs> did, did you watch Ant-Man? Have you watched Ant-Man? Oh, that's the probably one of the few MCU move films that I haven't watched. Watch Ant-Man. It will, it's a very, um, it was what, okay, not really, but 
a little bit of what really sparked my interest in wanting to know more about quantum physics and mm. is, is was Ant-Man. So that's also, maybe that's something we can all chat about too the next time we're on. Yeah. <laughs> we'll all watch Ant-Man and, and <laughs> Also go back and rewatch Endgame. All the time travel stuff is based to Sean Carroll's interpretation of quantum mechanics. Really? Okay, that yeah. I have seen. That I have seen. It's nothing else. It's a good heist movie. It was a great movie. Oh, it's one of I one of my favorites for this from uh, the that world. So right. thank you, Hilding. Over with the MC. Thank you, Hilding. I appreciate you. you, man. This was a great talk, and thank you so much. Thank you. This was super interesting. Bye bye. Take care. You can find Medicine for the Resistance on Facebook and the website www.med4r.com. Don't forget to rate, share, and support us by buying us a coffee at www.ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can also support the podcast and so much more by going to patreon.com slash pay your rent. You can follow Patty on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and at danish.ca, D-A-A-N-I-S.ca. You can follow Carrie at K-E-R-R-Y-O-S-C-I-T-Y, that's Curiosity, and find her online at kerrygoring.com. Our theme is fearless.